Thanks, Abby, and good afternoon, everyone. My name is Matt, and I serve as the pastor here. Uh, it's great to, to be uh, fully into the role now. just wanted to express, uh, even, even though he's not here, my gratefulness for John Stork and his ministry. Uh, continue to be praying for him. He has a few opportunities that he is praying and discerning about, and whenever he knows what he's going to do, uh, he's, he said he's going to let us know, and we'll share and rejoice with John. Uh, but tonight we're going to begin a new series of messages that will take us through November right up until the Advent season in the book of Daniel. At Res Pres, we like to say that we're a church that's for Urban and University Madison. And if someone were to come up to you and ask the question, just randomly off the street says, what does it mean to be a church for University Madison? I think it's fairly easy for us to answer that question. We can point to our ministry partnership with RUF. We can talk about the events that we do for college students throughout the year and our intentionality as a church to invest in undergraduate, graduate, postgrad students and, and faculty and help them to follow Jesus well in the vocation of learning and whatever uh, job opportunity that they're coming to the city to study for. It's fairly easy to answer that question. What does it mean to be a church for University of Madison? But if that same person says, all right, that makes sense, but... What does it mean to be a church for urban Madison? What would you respond? Uh, what, what would you point to in our church that says that this is a church that means we're about urban Madison? And one of my hopes is that in studying the book of Daniel, that by the time we get to the end of this book, one of our takeaways is that we know a little bit more about what it means to be a church for urban Madison, to be a church that's for our city, to be involved in the life of the city in, in ways that honor God, the ways that we follow Jesus in the various places that he's put us here in Madison, whether you've come for school or for work or whether you were born here. Uh, we want to be a, a congregation that blesses the city. And so we're going to look at the book of Daniel to teach us how to be a church for urban Madison. And my prayer is that as individuals and as a community, we can cultivate a posture uh, in, in a, about how we're going to live and embody our faith and, and carry ourselves in the city that can be indifferent and even at times hostile to what we believe as Christians. Now, I want, us to see how, I want us to see how we can care and be for and serve and bless others who have divergent views about what it is, uh, what the good, the true, and the beautiful ought to be. And I think there's no better place for us about how to follow Jesus well in the city than in the book of Daniel. Daniel is this interesting book of narratives and visions. Uh, the narratives are pretty straightforward. The visions are going to be something else, and we're going to get to that uh, in, a, in a couple, in, a, in a, just a handful of weeks. Uh, but I think there's, there's no better place for us to look about how to follow Jesus, how to follow God well in the city than by looking at Daniel. And in this opening narrative in Daniel 1, there's a few things that I want us to draw our attention to to help us lay a foundation for how we can follow Jesus well in the city. And so let's look at first uh, the pressures of the city. Secondly, uh, Daniel's posture toward the city. And then finally, the God of the city. So we're going to look at the pressures of the city, Daniel's posture toward the city, and then Lastly, the God of the city. So let's first consider the pressures of the city. But before we get there, uh, a little bit of historical context is helpful. So the book of Daniel opens around the year 605 B.C., so like 2,600 years ago uh, from, from, this, from this time and place in 2023. Opens on the, the nation of Judah, the kingdom uh, situated in Jerusalem. The nation is in stark decline, and, and around them, the nation of Babylon is on the ascent. They're conquering kingdom after kingdom around them. And now they're knocking on Judah and Jerusalem's door. And in 605, uh, Jerusalem uh, begins to feel the, the pressure from Babylon. Jerusalem itself will actually crumble and, and topple in about 20 years' time. But already uh, Babylon's going to exert some force 
uh, to put Jerusalem and Judah under his sway. So the Babylonians do this in a couple ways. The first thing that, that Babylon does is that they depose King Jehoiakim, who, who opened up the book of Daniel, and replaces him with a puppet king named Zedekiah. And then the second thing that Babylon does is they deport, they export some of the, the citizens and the people living in Jerusalem, and they carry them back to the capital city in Babylon. And every world empire uh, had its own strategy of consolidating its territory, of, of uh, firming its, its power in the region. Uh, before Babylon, the nation of Assyria, their approach was just mass deportation. You conquer a city, you take its population, and you spread it out through the other corners of the empire so that you don't have this like-minded, this common bond group of people rise up to rebel against the empire in the future. Babylon adopted this, this strategy of mass deportation, but they had it as their nuclear option. This was their last resort. They had a couple other pro, uh, steps in the process to try to consolidate their power, preserve their resources, and the way, the, what this process looked like were targeted deportations. So instead of taking the whole population of a city and scattering them, what Babylon did is that they would take uh, specific groups of people and take them out and, and, and take them to a different part of the empire. So they, they, the first deportation is actually what we read about in Daniel. And this was the, the deportation of the professional class. So this, this was the, the nobility, those of royal birth, those uh, who, had, who had skills, they were artisans, they were, they were professionals. Think of like the upper layer of society. Babylon took those individuals out of the city and took them to Babylon where they were going to be re-educated in the wisdom, the cultures, the customs, uh, the glories of Babylon. And Babylon's hope in this uh, was, was twofold. On the one hand, Babylon sought to see their own status elevated by bringing in the best of the best from, from the nation they, they conquered, uh, the, be, the, sh- the brightest minds, the, the sharpest intellects, the most influential to, to raise their own status and uh, authority and power, increase their own, uh, their own uh, wealth and, uh, and, and privileges. And on the other hand, the hope is that in re-educating the professional class and, and baptizing them in Babylonian culture, that these individuals would then become spokespeople, mouthpieces for the kingdom of Babylon, that they would return home and see uh, and, and tell their countrymen, look, look at me, look at how much better Babylon has made my life. It, it can happen for you to just submit to Babylon and everything will go well with you. And so uh, this is uh, what happens here in, in Daniel chapter one. The professional class are taken away from, uh, from Jerusalem and they're brought to Babylon. And uh, all in a way for, for Babylon to, to avert uh, a military intervention, which eventually uh, does happen. And so with this context in mind, it's easy for us now to see some of the pressures that Daniel and his friends experienced. They, they experienced what we could call the hard pressures, uh, the pressures of deportation, of being unwillingly ripped away from their home, their family, the religious community. Uh, but they also experienced what we could, all, we, we could call soft pressures. Uh, the soft pressures is what I want us to draw our attention to. Uh, Daniel chapter 1 picks up on what these soft pressures were. If you jump down to uh, verses 4 and 5, you see what these soft pressures are. Uh, the first off is, uh, is that Daniel and his friends are offered rich food and wine from the king's table, right? They're given the life of luxury. And then they are uh, educated in the best school of the world. Imagine that give, being given a full ride to, to Harvard or an Ivy League or, or UW if that was your dream school. Uh, and then uh, they were given the promise of high earning, significant employment upon their graduation. And all they had to do to get these things, uh, life of luxury, good education, high earning job, 
uh, was to just go along with the Babylonian story, to embrace uh, life in Babylon, to become a champion of its culture and its values. And the Babylonians go so far even to rename uh, the Jewish exiles in order to help them to expedite the process of them shedding their religious identities, uh, helping them leave their faith at the door as they, as they walk into uh, life in Babylon. In the Bible, names often have religious significance. So Daniel is a name that means God is my judge. And then he's renamed Belteshazzar, which means Bel is my God. Bel being one of the Babylonian gods. Uh, Mishael uh, is, a, is a Hebrew name that means who is like Yahweh, who is like the Lord. And he's renamed Meshach, who is like Aku. Aku is another one of the Babylonian gods. And in all sorts of different ways, Daniel and his friends are experiencing the soft pressures to conform to the way of Babylon, to find their new identity, to find their, their, uh, their joy, their, their good life uh, in what Babylon offers, and, and to leave uh, their identity as being part of God's people behind, to assimilate to the culture of the world, to embrace the stories and values uh, of the dominant culture that they've come into. And while we uh, may not have come to the city the same way that Daniel and his friends did, uh, if you came to Madison kicking and screaming, I'd love to talk to you about it and maybe learn more about your experience. But while we don't uh, face some of those hard pressures that Daniel and his friends experienced, uh, we all face many of those same soft pressures, uh, the temptation for, for the good life, uh, for education uh, to lead to, uh, to, to helping us achieve our vision of what we think is the good life or what our city tells us. Uh, the good life is, on a daily, if not hourly basis, through uh, the ads that we, that we see, through the political slogans that get thrown around, through uh, what's uh, rewarded in our careers and in our relationships, uh, we're being presented with a story, with a, a vision of the good life. And in, in, in order for us to step into it, we need to shed our beliefs and our assumptions. We need to uh, Leave those things behind. And if you grew up in a Christian or a religious or a church community, you need to leave that behind as well and to embrace, uh, embrace the values and the story of the culture. And so uh, in order for us to help us better spot the, what those things might be, that what are, what are the narratives or the, or the values of our culture, here's a couple that I've been reflecting on this past week that I think that if we buy into these, these stories, these values 100%, we might have assimilated to, this, to the story of Madison, to the story of of, of uh, Western civilization. Uh, the first is uh, do what makes you happy, right? Listen to your heart. If it feels right, do it. it that, that story is, in, is, is like oxygen to us. It's the, it's the air we breathe. And on paper, it seems like it makes sense. Uh, I mean, our, our hearts often uh, lead us into very good things. But this, this narrative of do whatever you want, listen to your heart, I think is a, is a very flimsy and it's a thin narrative. It's flimsy because we're always changing. Our, our desires about what we think will make us happy is, is a moving target. And, and so how do we know that what we want right now, what we think will make us happy, will be the thing that makes us happy two years from now? I mean, forget two years from now. What about two weeks from now? Will that thing that we want now make us happy? Uh, following your heart is such a flimsy way to live, but it's also thin because do what makes you happy has no framework for navigating suffering. That the moment that suffering walks into your life uninvited and unannounced as it always does, you'll find yourself that, uh, that, you, that you don't know what to do with it because suffering takes away your happiness. And if happiness is the core of your identity, then when suffering comes, you lose your identity. So do whatever makes you happy. Follow your heart. Uh, it, it is, a, is an empty way to live. Uh, but consider also this one. Um, live however you want, just as long as you don't harm other people. 
Uh, do whatever you want as long as you don't hurt someone else in the process. Again, uh, a way of life that seems great on paper, uh, but I, I think it's too thin for another, for another set of reasons. Um, one, uh, when we say don't harm other people, uh, whose definition of harm are, are, we, are we going with here? Uh, what standard uh, of harm or care are we appealing to? Um, and I've often heard people justify their thought life or uh, what they view on their smartphone or their computer screen by saying things like, you know, it's just me in my apartment, no one's there. Uh, all that stuff is out there on the internet anyway. It was, you know, it, it didn't hurt anybody. But, but don't you see that in those, in those instances, what you consume on the internet, whether that's the social media influencer or, or porn or something else, don't, don't you see how those things uh, creep into and seep into our relationships in the real world? Don't you see that uh, if we spend our time commodifying and objectifying other people, that it, does, that it can't not help uh, but skew our relationships in the real world when we view other people as means to our ends, as, as things to get things from and advance our agendas rather than, rather than people to serve and to love and to give up our own rights for in order to care for? And so when competing definitions of harm emerge, which one do you go with? Uh, and, and how do you know which standard that you go with is the right one to go with? So those are just some of the pressures for us uh, in the city. And, and we're naive to think that moving to a place like Madison, uh, that Madison is neutral when it comes to, to how we live and, and to what story it presents to us and, and what way of life to pursue. The city, the culture has its own pressures to conform. It has its own story and values that it's subtly and imperceptibly at times trying to get us to embrace. And unless you know that you're going, in, unless you know that going into the city, you're going to end up assimilating. What you, believe, what you say you believe is going to slowly be replaced uh, by the culture's beliefs. So those are the pressures of the city, these soft pressures to conform, to shed, um, to shed religious commitments, to shed obedience to God in order to embrace the, the narratives, the values, the stories of the city. And so as we look now at Daniel's posture toward the city, uh, notice first what he doesn't do. Uh, it's natural to think that if life in the city comes with all of these different pressures to conform and assimilate, then the best way to avoid them all is just to withdraw, to, to push eject on, on life in the city, to live outside of it, to, live in a, in a, to choose to live in a subculture, to stick with your own people. Uh, that, way you're, that way you avoid pollution, you maintain your, your, your purity, your identity. And this is actually what some of the exiles who uh, go in this first deportation do. In Jeremiah 28, another Old Testament book, we get this parallel account uh, of this first deportation. And in that chapter, uh, the prophet, there's a prophet named Hananiah, and it's different than the Hananiah that we read about in Daniel. This prophet Hananiah is telling the exiles who've been brought to Babylon not to go in the city. Babylon's a wicked place. It's opposed to God. And, and any day now, God is going to come and smite Babylon and bring his people home. And in the midst of Hananiah's message to the people of, uh, in exile, God comes to Jeremiah in the next chapter, Jeremiah 29, and tells Jeremiah something radically different. Uh, God tells Jeremiah a couple, to tell the people of Israel a couple of surprising things. Uh, the first surprising thing uh, is that uh, God says that he's the one that's brought them to Babylon. It's not just by accident or some geopolitical happenstance that, the, that these exiles find themselves in Babylon. No, God says that he brought them there, and we'll unpack that thought a little bit later. Uh, but God says that he's the person who's brought them to exile. Babylon was just an instrument to get them there. But the second thing that God says, and this is even more surprising, is that God says, don't stay outside the city. Go into Babylon. Build houses. Plant vineyards. Eat what they produce. Marry. Have children. Pressure those children to have grandchildren. <laughs> because 
you're, you're going to be here for a while. So work for the flourishing of the city. And when this city flourishes, you'll, you'll flourish as well. When this city prospers, you also will prosper. And, and so do you hear what all the voices uh, surrounding the exile are saying? The prophet Hananiah is, say, is saying, pray against the city. Uh, Babylon says, don't pray. Leave that behind. But God says, no, pray. Pray for the city. Don't pray against the city. Pray for the city and, and move in and work in such a way where you're a blessing uh, to those uh, that you labor and neighbor next to in the city. So Jeremiah is here to help us break up this false dichotomy, this, this manufactured choice between assimilating to the, to the city and the culture on the one hand and withdrawing from the city on the other, to stay pure on the outside or to lose your identity on the inside. Uh, Jeremiah says that, that both can be true. You can move into the city and maintain your identity and you can stay pure in the midst of it. See, God says that, that we can do both. And, and in fact, it's imperative that we, that we actually do both, that we, that, we, that we be part of the city, that we are involved in the life uh, of Madison or Babylon or wherever God has placed us if we're following him. And this is the posture that Daniel embraces. He doesn't stay outside of Babylon and withdraw. Uh, and as verse 8 shows us, Daniel doesn't completely go on with the assimilation program either. Uh, Daniel draws a line in verse 8, and he draws it with food. And while we're not given the exact reason why Daniel draws a line, uh, we can assume in reading other parts of the Old Testament that Daniel maybe abstained because the food was against uh, Jewish dietary laws, or maybe more likely, uh, in the ancient ancient world, there was no butcher, and so all the meat came by way of the temple, which meant that the meat was often sacrificed to another god, to an idol. And so maybe Daniel abstains because he knows the meat is, is sacrificed to a, to a God that isn't his God. And so Daniel uh, sees what's going on, and then he resolves. He, he makes a deliberate, conscious effort to, to be in Babylon, but not of Babylon. To be in the world, but not of the world. In a way, he, he embraces his two names. He, he is both Daniel, uh, God is my judge, the Lord is my judge, and he's Belteshazzar, I'm here to serve the city uh, but I'm only going to serve the city because my, my identity is in God. So he embraces those two names. He, he, it, or to frame it in the way that maybe the church father Augustine might frame it, Daniel chooses to be a faithful resident of the city of God while laboring and working in the city of man. Uh, that he has devoted uh, his life to the heavenly city even while he finds himself in the earthly city. And so these are the things that, that Daniel and his friends go along with. Uh, They learn the language, they go to Babylon University, graduate top of their class, but Daniel and his friends uh, don't fully buy into the the conformity project. They they say that Babylon has good things to offer us that that we can use and learn and grow in the world that God has made, but there are certain things that we will not do. We will not uh, compromise our integrity, we will not lose lose our our devotion to God because he comes first. And we're going to see how this plays out in the rest of Daniel going forward. And it's on this point of, of Daniel's posture here, what, what we could call faithful presence. It's not assimilation. It's not withdrawal. He's being faithfully present in and among the people. Uh, we, we could say at least two more things about it. Uh, first, in order to, to live for God in this way, to have the resolve that Daniel showed, uh, it involves, first of all, a familiarity with, with what is true. Truth with a capital T and a willingness to, to draw a line whenever uh, truth is encroached upon. Uh, you, have to, you have to actually know what is true in order to stand for what is true. And, and so for us, in order to do that, we, we actually have to have a familiarity with, uh, with what we believe is true. And so for, for the Christian community, we believe that uh, 
what is true is contained uh, not just in uh, we, we, we believe that what is true is contained in, in God's word, uh, but God also gave us a world for us to understand. And so we, we understand God's world in light of God's word, and we try to live our lives in conformity with how uh, God has designed the world and made it to be as it's reflected in his word, as it's on display in the world. And we, we can't live in a, in, a, in a way where we say, uh, you live your truth and I'll live mine. Uh, in order to take a stand, you have to, you have to stand on something. Uh, G.K. Chesterton, the English uh, satirist, he, he said that uh, an open mind has the same func- should have the same function as an, o- as an open mouth, uh, that eventually you close it on something solid, uh, meaning that we, we should have something solid at the end of the day to stand on. And unless you know what that solid ground is, you're going to be swayed by, by, by anything and everything. And so, friends, do you, do you have a familiarity with the truth? Do you, do you uh, have a regular practice of being in God's word and reminding yourself of what is true? Because unless, uh, unless you have a familiarity with and a, and a regular uh, practice of immersing yourself in the truth, you're going you're gonna to settle for a lie. You're going to fall for, for, for a misconception or, or a lesser truth than what God actually extends to us. And so uh, what we see here in Daniel is that uh, particularly with Daniel, Daniel believes that God, uh, uh, that following God is just as true in Babylon as it is in Jerusalem. And I think one of the temptations of coming to the city is that the city gives you this, this narrative of freedom that maybe when you move to a new city, you feel the, the, the desire to redefine yourself, uh, to break free of some restraints or some, uh, or, or some ways that you were perceived in the city that you came from. Uh, but is God uh, worth following the same way in your hometown as he is in this town? Because Daniel believed that, 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 the, God of ba- that the God of Jerusalem is, a, is the same God of Babylon, and that no matter what the context he's in, no matter what circumstances surround him, whether he's had a good week or a bad week, that God is still God, and he should follow him wholeheartedly. And so, friends, do we have that same posture to follow God wherever he has placed us, whether we're in our hometown or whether we're in the city? So Daniel held to what is true, but second, do you see his compassion and his graciousness as he, uh, that he displays in his disagreement, in his, uh, in his disagreement with the Babylonian assimilation project. Uh, Daniel resolves to live out the truth, but he doesn't rub his worldview in the face of the Babylonians. Uh, he doesn't tell the chief eunuch, you know, just tough, right? Like, I've got my way of living, you've got your way of living. Uh, so, you know, I'm on the right side of history, you're on the wrong side. God's, God's on my team, not on your team, so just deal with it. But no, notice what Daniel does. He, he comes to the chief eunuch with a test. He says, Here's a test that will protect me and it will protect you. Test us for 10 days and you'll see my faithfulness and, you, and that will prove that my God is king. And, and that's exactly what happens. Even in, even in his resistance, Daniel is compassionate and gracious. And friends, what would that look like for us? What, what, what that might look like for us to disagree, but to disagree with others gracefully. When we're at work or at school and we have a disagreement, uh, that we're able to draw a line, but disagree with people in such a way where the people that we disagree with feel loved and cared for by us, even though we have divergent views about what is good and true and beautiful. It can be truly countercultural. In a world where we're so deeply divided, where we immediately turn our enemies uh, into people to be destroyed, we have an opportunity as the people of God to see people, even in the midst of disagreement, as individuals to be loved, as people with souls to care for and to seek their flourishing. And this is Daniel's posture. Right? It's not assimilation, it's not withdrawal, it's faithful presence. It's resolving to live as a citizen of the heavenly city, even as we reside and work in the earthly city. 
And it's not choosing between grace and truth, but it's being full of both grace and truth. But it's here, though, that the friction emerges, right? (laughs) Daniel's posture toward the city is an example for us. But if we're honest, uh, we've all gotten it wrong at some point. Maybe you're even thinking back to something this past week where you were too harsh with a coworker, or maybe uh, there was something that was being said in a meeting uh, about someone else, or maybe something that was brought up in a meeting that you just disagreed with fundamentally at your core, and you didn't speak up because you didn't want to cause conflict, or maybe you wanted to be liked by somebody else, and so you kept silent uh, in an unjust cause. And, And it's in those moments where the example of Daniel is nice, but it's, but it's also crushing. Because we look at what Daniel has done and we, and we can say, how can we ever live up to that example? Uh, and, and so in those moments where we, where we have our own inconsistency, our own failure, brought, brought to light by the example of Daniel uh, and other faithful individuals, what do we do? Well, friends, we, we do the, the exact same thing that Daniel did, and that's look to the God of the city. So as we look at last, the God of the city, I mentioned earlier that in Jeremiah 29, uh, God said that it it wasn't an accident that that Daniel and the other exiles ended up in Jerusalem, that God brought them to that place. That's exactly what we read about in in our Daniel narrative. In verse 2, it reads that God gave, God gave the king of Judah over to the king of Babylon, and that God brought them to the land of Shinar, uh, where Babylon was. You see, uh, God brought... God brought the exiles to that place not just because of their disobedience to God and and their failure to live up to God's standards for for the people uh, at the time. God also brought the people of of Judah to Babylon to be a blessing to Babylon, to be a blessing to the nations. Um, That that by being dispersed throughout uh, the world, that they could be a blessing uh, to those around them, that they might come to know their God as well. And also, do you see that in the last verse of our passage, verse 21, it says that Daniel served until the first year of King Cyrus. And and you know who Cyrus was? Cyrus was the first king of Persia. So Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar is the first king of Babylon, and Cyrus is the first king of Persia, which means that that even though Daniel and his friends were were brought to Babylon, God vindicated them through the nation of Babylon, that they they endured uh, long after Babylon... uh, was a powerful force in the country. So Babylon came and went, but Daniel and his friends remained. Why? Because they remained faithful to their God. And, and, and the overarching idea here is that kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall, but God is sovereign over all. The Babylonians brought Daniel and his friends to Babylon, but even the great nation Babylon would not endure. In, in theological terms, Daniel trusted in the sovereignty of God, that, that no matter what was going on around him, that God was in control of all things working them together for, for the glory of God and for the good of Daniel and his friends. And, and, and friends, unless you and I have that same view of God's sovereignty, uh, you're not going to have this, the ability or the stamina to follow God in the city. Unless you have a view of God being in control of all things, you're not going to make it. Uh, you, you're going to feel overwhelmed or intimidated by the city, and eventually you're going to give in to its story and, and into its values. And your willpower is going to run out. But knowing that God is in control, it gives you the ability to, resi- to resist, to resist conforming to the culture, story, and values, because you know that, that there's only one kingdom, there's only one city that's going to endure to the end, and it's not Babylon, it's not the Roman Empire, regardless of how often you think about it, it's not even the United States, it, it's the kingdom of God, the, the heavenly city made without hands. And so, as we, as we remember God's sovereignty and his control over the, the cities and the kingdoms of men, we also need to keep in mind Jesus, the king of the city. 
see, Daniel, in all his wonder and greatness, uh, was still not a perfect person. He, he even needs a Savior. And, and when it comes to us, we need more than, than Daniel's example. We need a Savior just like Daniel. And so this brings us to Jesus. The, the, as, as, one, as one late pastor, Tim Keller, would put it, Jesus is the, is the true and better Daniel. And, and notice all the residences, all the, all the different ways that Daniel in this text points us forward to Jesus. See, Daniel embraced his two names, Daniel and Belteshazzar. And we could say in a way that Jesus had two names as well, as, as God and man. He fully embraced those two identities in, in a way that worked out the fullness uh, of, of salvation for God's people. The gospel writer John describes Jesus as being full of grace and truth, the, the, the exact same balance that we need to have if we're going to follow Jesus in the city. Regarding food, Daniel told the, told the official, test us with food for 10 days and I'll prove my faithfulness and show you that my God is king. And in the wilderness, Jesus says to the devil, test me with food. I'll go without food for 40 days and I'll prove my faithfulness and show you that God, my father, is the true king and he's vindicated. It, Daniel, at various points, resisted the pressures of the city to conform, to, to live as a citizen, uh, uh, to live as a full citizen of Babylon. And, and in the same way, Jesus resisted the conformity to the pattern of the world as well. In John chapter 18, when Jesus is on trial before the Roman governor, Pilate, Pilate asks Jesus if he is a king. And Jesus says, I am a king, but my kingdom is not of this world. Otherwise, my followers would be fighting for me. Jesus is saying that I'm taking a different approach to power. Uh, I'm a king, but I'm not a king in the same way that the, that the kings of this world are kings. The kings of this world use violence and, and death and destruction to assert their rule. I, I, I assert my rule through, through my own death, through violence to myself so that my, so that my subjects, my followers, experience peace and salvation. And David and Daniel, though he is faithful, he goes into exile. And through his faithfulness, God works to establish his plans for his people. And Jesus, we could say on the cross, uh, the perfectly faithful one, he goes into cosmic exile, enduring all the punishment that our disobedience and our failure to live these resolved lives of integrity with God in the city, he endures all the punishment that our disobedience deserves. And in doing so, he establishes God's kingdom and salvation for all who look to him in faith. See, as we work our way through this book, the book of Daniel over the next couple months, let's not, let's not lose the point. The moral of the book of Daniel is not be like Daniel. Rather, the moral of the, of the story is be like Jesus. Look to Jesus, the true and better Daniel, who has paid for all your failures, and follow him graciously, truthfully. Resolve to follow him, and he'll see you through to the end. Kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall, but Jesus is sovereign over all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that despite our circumstances, despite uh, all these things that are going on in our lives that are outside our control, that you, Jesus, are still in control, that you are the true and better Daniel who has brought about our salvation through your perfect faithfulness. And as we come to your table now, help us to better uh, grasp with all our senses what it looks like to live lives of sacrifice uh, and love to those who uh, might even call themselves enemies. Because we know, Lord, that while we were your enemies, you died for us. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.